Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome back to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project podcast. I'm Jay Harrington. With me is Tom Nixon. Hi, Tom. Hello, Jay. Tom, I've been thinking over the last uh, course of the last few weeks, I guess, with the the turn towards the fourth quarter, um, you know, one of the dynamics that obviously drove a lot of our conversation around legal marketing back at the onset of the COVID-19 crisis was how content marketing, thought leadership marketing became an urgent priority for almost all lawyers because there was no real other form of marketing that anyone could do. And not only that, the marketplace was really demanding answers and that those answers were being delivered via content. But, you know, we've got what, six, seven, going on maybe eight months now since we, you know, the pandemic really made, accelerated that shift in thinking and, and marketing. And a lot of lawyers who may have maybe dabbled in content marketing when that, when that, when the pandemic hit, really dove into it head first and probably have a lot of content under their belt now, perhaps more content this year than in you know past several years combined. However, uh, there's, there's bound to be some people out there who have made a significant investment in creating content, but maybe haven't seen a return on that investment that they were hoping for. So yeah, I thought today we could talk about maybe a few of the reasons why a lawyer who has been creating content may not be seeing that return on investment. Does that sound like a good good plan? Yeah, and I think the timing's right. Like we've been discussing fourth quarter and then what follows fourth quarter is, you know, the New Year's resolutions, both personal and professional. <clears throat> Now's the time to evaluate what's working and potentially what's not working and then make the adjustments. And we talked a lot about in our analytics episode about it's not enough just to measure the data and measure what's working or not working, but then to adjust accordingly. So I think this is a good topic for the right time. Okay, great. Well, let's let's dive in. I, we're going to be talking about five reasons your content marketing isn't working. And I like can... the way that you framed it, Jay, is that um, let's, let's frame it in the way of somebody who maybe just started to either do this for the first time or do more of it because of the events and, you know, the um, just the, the status of marketing in general right now. Um, let's start with, so I'm guessing that the newcomers found it difficult to be consistent. They started out with all sorts of gusto and they had all kinds of content turning out initially. But one of the first things that makes people or a program not work is a lack of consistency. Yeah, that's right. I think lack of consistency is, a, is certainly reason number one. Not necessarily uh, that the, I think all of these reasons have maybe equal importance or they might, some might be applicable to some people and not others, but lack of consistency certainly will, will hurt you from, from really realizing the value of your content marketing. And what, what we mean by lack of consistency is just not having um, a, a, a frequent enough cadence or a or, or, or consistent enough cadence. You're sort of having a scattershot approach. You might have time one month, you write a couple articles, you put them out, um, you don't do anything else for you know another month, and then you write another article. You, what you're trying to do is develop an audience and, and any, any program, podcast, TV show, anything else, if, if they're hoping to develop an audience, they have, to, they have to explain to their audience when they can expect you know, the content to be delivered. So in the case of you know, Netflix, of course, they're 
they just dump all the content at once and you can watch it, watch it you know, at your leisure. Um, in most other instances, you know, programs come out on a schedule and people develop routines around that schedule. And so if, if, you're, if you're a content creator and you want to develop an audience, it's very important to, to set and meet expectations around uh, you know, how, how often, how frequently uh, you, and how consistently you're putting out content. Um, that just allows your, your readers, in this case, we're using writing as the example, um, to develop an affinity for you, to look out for your content, to, you know, expect and, and seek out that content. So it might mean they're, you know, they're keeping an eye out for you on LinkedIn because they know your weekly blog post or your daily summary of salient issues on, on LinkedIn is coming. Um, or if you're a podcaster, certainly getting out podcasts on a, on a consistent basis. It's just important to do that because otherwise, you know, you're going to have, you might have, um, you know, some, some spikes in readership over time, but you're never going to build that consistent, ongoing, incremental audience that you're looking for. So consistency is key. Yeah, and I think the place to solve this problem is not after it's happened, but before. And so we recommend early on in your planning process is to actually map out a content calendar. And the first question we ask our client is, what can you reasonably commit to from a time commitment standpoint? And it's a hard question to answer. I think usually attorneys are overly zealous or optimistic about what their time will afford. So they say, oh, weekly, or like you said, even daily, daily updates. But now that you've got six months behind us, behind you, look back and say, okay, what's realistic? Maybe it's every other week. Maybe a podcast is going to have to be monthly or blogging is going to be monthly. Whatever you could commit to, that's what you should commit to. Not, you know, commit to weekly or daily because that seems right. But don't, my advice anyway, I don't know what you think of this, Jay, it's just to only commit to what's achievable and then create your cadence around that. So your listenership and your audience, as you say, is going to come to expect that which you can deliver and no more. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, the only caveat to that would be just, I, I have seen in working with clients, they, I, because, they're ex, because they're anticipating investing so much time in individual pieces of content, uh, sometimes they think it's unrealistic to be on a schedule that I think they can probably meet or, or exceed because you know, they, they have an understanding of what content is to be you know, akin to a law review article as opposed to, you know, something you, you can sit down and, and reasonably uh, complete in, in a couple hours, um, such as a, you know, seven or 800 word blog post. So, so yeah, definitely make it achievable. Um, make it easy on yourself in a sense. You don't always feel like you're failing or falling behind, um, but also don't underestimate your ability to, uh, you know, put out content and understand that as you create more content, you're going to get better and faster at it. So, you know, kind of balance those interests. Rule of thumb, I'm just going to throw this out there. It's not by any means scientific, but um, bi-weekly. So every other week, monthly is probably not enough. Weekly can sometimes be intrusive on a busy attorney's schedule, but every other week is something that you can commit to, and to your point, probably should, because it doesn't have to be a law review article. It's it's more conversational in tone, and, and we can get into maybe some of the other mistakes. But um, yeah, I think, you know, by, start with bi-weekly, see if you can accelerate it, and certainly, you know, don't go much slower than that, but good cadence there. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think that's a, a good good benchmark to aim for. And, and one last point on that before we move to the next reason uh, or the next issue is if you keep up, say, a biweekly cadence as opposed to a monthly or, you know, even beyond that, you're going to have a far easier time coming up with good topics to produce content about or create content about because it's going to be at the top of your mind. You're not going to mm-hmm. lose sight of that um, 
objective that you have in mind. And so you're going to be just sort of absorbing and, and finding uh, interesting topics to write about or podcast about because it's just, it's just sort of there and you're, you're taking in information in a way that is framed by your content creation efforts. Which I think is a good segue into issue number two, because let, let's say I'll erect a straw man here. Let's say somebody decides they're going to do a quarterly content dump. So they're going to wait 90 days. They're going to pro- process and they're going to, because they think it's too onerous on their time, they're going to carve out maybe a day every 90 days to develop content. Well, in 90 days, so much, let's look at the past 90 days. So much has happened in so much has happened in the legal world that it's impossible to do a real deep dive into all of the developments and all of the specific issues. So what you end up doing in a 90 day cadence maybe, and here's issue number two, is you offer content that's just too general. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, too many generalities. Um, and, and so this comes from, like you said, having too much, feeling like you have to pack too much into a single piece of content. And as a result, you water it down. Or again, not having a specific enough, specific enough audience that you're, you're creating that content for. As a result, you, don't, you can't really say anything particularly interesting. You, you don't want to be citing case studies because they may not relate to everyone you're trying to reach, which is, which is literally everyone. Um, you can't contextualize the information for any particular audience. And you just, as a result, produce something of, of general interest, which is really of interest to no one. Particularly when you, you have to think about the fact that when you're creating content, you are competing for Mindshare with all of the other content creators out there. And are you really gonna, you know, if, if you were to put yourself in the shoes of your, your audience, are you really gonna choose an article just of sort of general interest when you have plenty of opportunities to find a piece of content that was written specifically for you. Of course, you're going to go for the, the specific, narrowly tailored piece of content. So when you're thinking about your content strategy, again, get back to this issue of having a narrow focus, clear understanding of your audience, and craft that content for that small audience segment, which you know we, we say small, but it's small relative to everyone. It's still you know, that audience segment presents a massive opportunity for you, but you'll never, you'll never find and attract that audience if you're writing things that are too general in nature. And again, this is all solved in the planning process. So if you're doing the work early of being strategic about the niche and then mapping out a content calendar that aligns with those narrow interests, as you said, you'll be able to, and now you have an understanding of how frequently you can produce content. Now you can chart that out six months in advance, at least three months in advance. So, um, that allows you to be more strategic about the content topics that you choose and to be more specific. And if you're using this time now, as we suggested early on, that to kind of review the past six months and then plan for the next 90, six month, 90 days, six months to a year, now's the time to reevaluate your content calendar or inventory and honestly assess, did I go deep enough and narrow enough in the subject matter expertise, or did I try to appeal to too many? So now, again, use this time to maybe plan for, using history as your guide, plan for the next six months, and I couldn't agree more. Be The more specific you are, the more that you're gonna tailor your content around genuine interests or problems that a specific person has, and that's the specific person that's going to hire you. It's not the market, so to speak. It's a specific person with a discrete issue or problem. So let's what, move to issue. Oh, go ahead, Tom. I was just gonna. I was gonna move to issue three and say, okay. what is the flip side to that? Because there's a problem by going too far the other way. What would that be? Well, I think this this is an issue that that you see quite a bit, um, and it it's typically around a common 
form of legal content marketing, which is blog posts or articles that analyze uh, different statute, new statutes, for example, or court opinions where lawyers will write about those issues and they'll spend an inordinate amount of time analyzing, you know, what happened. Um, so, you know, you see in any court opinion that the Supreme Court puts out, for example, um, you'll see everyone writing articles about that topic and they'll spend, you know, many lawyers will spend three quarters of the, of the piece just talking about the, the, the ins and outs of the court's analysis. Um, you know, what, what issues did they consider? How did they, how did they kind of, uh, what did they take into account? What prior precedent played a role in the analysis? And what, if you think about it again, of putting yourself in the shoes of your reader, well, what do they want from that piece of content? They just want the actionable advice for the most part. They don't really care to see, you know, to use a, um, an analogy, they don't really need to see the math that, you know, as, as, as far as seeing your work, they just want to know the right answer. And so I think this is just a mistake that, that can commonly be made. And again, it, it's something that spills over from legal writing, brief writing and, and memo writing where you, know, you, you don't want to just, you, you don't want to just provide the answer, but you need to provide the, the prior precedent because that's what judges want. That's what your superiors want or your, your client in some instances, just to know how you got to that opinion. Uh, but in, a, in legal content marketing, you know, your audience typically doesn't care all that much about the analysis. They really want the actionable advice. So if you can cut way back on the analysis and add more, way more actionable advice, then I think you're going to have a lot more success with your content. Yeah, and I, a not too distant cousin of this, I think, is analysis in the hypothetical. And by that, I mean, they might, as you say, spend three quarters of the article analyzing what went into the uh, decision or what have you. Um, and then they start positing what this might mean in the future, just in the general sense, is hypothetically, this could mean such and such, this could mean such and such. Again, for too broad of an audience, for just the law in general, when really, again, getting back to the reader, they don't care so much about what might happen as a result. They care about what should happen as a result for them specifically and personally. So, um, you know, and I don't, I wouldn't just say that this is something confined to legal content marketers. I think it's just content marketers in general. They say, you know, something new has happened. Even Google has released a new algorithm. What this might mean for the future of search. Well, some of that is just too ethereal and too hypothetical. What, you know, the reader wants is what do I do to my website right now to fix it? because of the new algorithms out. So um, I think there's two coins or two sides to that coin. What is, uh, you ready to move on to issue number four? Yeah, let's do that. We could kind of peek under the hood of a piece of content, maybe specifically. Um, what are some of the things that you think, uh, or I'm going to tee this up for you because I already know the answer. I'm looking at our show prep here. <laughs> um, what do you think could prevent or would be the most dangerous way to prevent a reader from engaging your content at all? What's the mistake that people make? Well, it, it's essentially, you're not, you're not opening the front door to your content to someone by creating a compelling headline. So I think in practice, sometimes people will start an article with a headline in mind, um, or, you know, they'll write the article and then, and then kind of can treat the headline as an afterthought. In both instances, that's the wrong approach. Um, the, the headline is so important to someone 
noticing and discovering your content that it should, you know, I, I, I won't say you spend as much time in the headline as, as you do writing an article, but some would recommend that. Uh, but you, you certainly should be spending more time than you probably are. Um, many, many uh, content marketing advisors suggest that you come up with, you know, 10 different proposed headlines, for example. Um, and, and the reason for that is just as I started this with is that, you know, if, if you, if you don't have a great headline and you're competing against all of the other content out there, then all of that work you put in to write the content is going to go to waste because people do, uh, they are attracted. I mean, think about your own behavior when you're surfing the internet, you, you get attracted to things that are compelling, interesting, um, intriguing, whatever the case might be. And it's all driven by the headline itself. And so there's some best practices around this. Um, and maybe Tom, I'll throw it over to you to just share some of your thoughts around headline writing and the importance of headlines. Well, I will say that there's a common term in our world that maybe might not be as recognizable uh, in the legal profession, but probably is the, the concept of clickbait. So clickbait was sort of a pejorative for what, um, news media would do to kind of elicit clicks because they get paid by page views, or at least that was the historic, you know, revenue model for, uh, digital media page views and time on site. So the whole name of the game was to get somebody to click through and Buzzfeed was the best at this because it was such and such happened and you won't believe what happened next. Right? So I'm not going to suggest that an attorney engages in clickbait, but there's a lesson, a broader lesson to be learned by that, which is you need to get people away from whatever environment they're currently browsing content to engage with your content. So if they're on LinkedIn, that headline is also going to serve as a preview to the article when you post the link in say a status update or on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, it's going to be the first thing in bold that stands out. That is, as you said, that's the front door and you, that, really needs to have a credible amount of time and thought put into what is going to compel someone to stop because they, they didn't go to LinkedIn usually to say, I'm going to go click on 10 articles today and I'm going to spend it two hours because I know it's going to take me that long. What they're doing is they're looking for just highlights and there, you have to create a pattern interrupt, what we call a pattern interrupt, which is figure out a way to get that person away from what they intended to do, which is to mindlessly maybe scroll through a, a feed and, stop on your podcast or your article and deeply engage with it. So that's, um, that's not a, it's a, not an easy task and it's becoming more and more difficult with each passing day. So to your point, take some time in care. I would also recommend that you do some AB testing and do this over time in uh, experiment with maybe two conventions and you'll have to figure out what those conventions are, but you, you know, you might do it a certain way a number of times. And then your, your B test would be a different way. Say stay consistent. Uh, multiple times with a, an A type of convention, multiple times with a B type of convention. Hopefully this is making sense. And then over time, what you'll see is are people clicking on convention A or convention B? So convention A could be I'm leading with a question that demands an answer. Convention B might be it's a listicle format where it's the five key things, blah, 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 five key actionable takeaways of such and such. And I think over time, you'll, you'll start to see some trends and behaviors. And then I would orient your future around past successes. So that's just one example. Again, borrow from the concept behind clickbait without being clickbaity because clickbait has become annoying. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I, I think that's right, Tom. And yeah, there are certain conventions for, you know, the types of headline styles that work. And, and so you can go online and, and maybe we'll link to some resources which, which talk about them. But, um, you know, the, the ones, there are certain ones that say start with a number, you know, like a number with an adjective with a keyword and a ending with a promise. Uh, it's sort of a format that's very common. You'll see that and it's hard to, uh, it's hard to resist sometimes those articles. But, uh, but yeah, yeah you, if you do a little research, you'll find the, you know, five to 10 different formats of headlines. And, and yeah, definitely try to experiment with those because it will have a big impact on how much of re- how much readership you get for the, for the work you do. I'll give you an example of what I do. Cause I'm, pretty active on Twitter, probably more than most attorneys, but other attorneys. The, the nice thing about Twitter is it's a real time, it's closer to a real time social network than anything else. Um, and you can, you can configure it in such a way that it is explicitly real time. Um, so because of that, I'm able to post several times a day on Twitter and I wouldn't recommend that for most people on LinkedIn or Facebook. Um, but because I have so much opportunity on Twitter, I really use Twitter to experiment and do my ABC and D testing. And I might take the same piece of content, even with the same headline. And then I might alter the headline in the status update portion of my, you know, update. And so I might, if the headline was, uh, in the article was seven ways to avoid such and such, um, I might in one instance of a tweet, just lead with that headline, seven ways to avoid such and such. Or I might be, uh, I try, you know, the dangers that so-and-so encountered when they failed to. So now I'm using sort of a case study in a cautionary tale. That's an, that's what I mean between A and B. And again, I vary on Twitter. I vary the time of day I post. I vary the format. Sometimes I'm including an image to take up more real estate in the Twitter feed. Um, sometimes I'm just creating um, some intrigue by maybe a three-word headline and a link. Something like um, th- that kind of is a little clickbaity. So maybe I won't use that as an example. Or, but I do it from time to time, and you see the clicks happen. So. Um, you can use, if you're on Twitter, I would say use Twitter as your sort of testing grounds because LinkedIn, I don't think you want to post the same thing three times a day on LinkedIn, that's for sure. Should we move on to issue number five or challenge number five? Yeah, let's do it. This is a big one and it's sort of all encompassing, um, but it's important for content developers because it's not enough to just develop compelling content. It's all in how you get it out there. So. Issue number five may be that your promotion strategy is lacking. And what do we mean by that? Well, I think everyone needs to think about the fact that you, your job is, you know, once you create content, it's, it's certainly not over. At least phase one might be over, but phase two is a whole nother responsibility, which is to make sure that that content is being seen by those who, uh, you know, could benefit from it and might be interested in it. And what I would say, first of all, is that, you know, as a lawyer who might be working at a law firm with a marketing department, your, your job isn't just to merely rely upon your internal marketing department to do that work for you. You as the individual content creator, it's incumbent upon you to, to go to bat for your content and make sure it's getting in front of the right people. So, you know, again, getting back, Tom, to the issue you've raised a couple times in the episode, which is thinking about your, your content strategy, promotion is an important component of that. So making sure that it's not, you're not just outsourcing it to your marketing department, making sure that you're not just sharing it once on LinkedIn and never doing anything else with it, but having a really you know, sort of, it doesn't need to be, you don't need to overdo it, but you need to have 
a strategy in place where you're getting that content in front of your audience with you know multiple times across multiple platforms and and doing so in a in such a way that that then you you continue to share that content over time so it's sort of this spike in promotion right after you've created a piece and then mixing that content into your overall you know social media mix for example um as part of you know just a broader body of work that you've created um but you you as the content creator need to do that yourself and you need to you need to share it. You need to, you know, tag people who might be interested in it. You need to use the appropriate hashtags to make sure that it's um, discoverable by people who might be interested in it. it. It's a job in and of itself. It doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to take a lot of time and you'll get a lot faster at it as you practice more. Um, but you, you need to do it because otherwise, what's the point? Um, you can't really just have a passive approach to content and rely on people sort of stumbling upon your website or just simply relying upon Google search. You need to, you need to be pushing the content out as well as waiting for people to discover it through, through other means. Yeah, and I like and, and echo what you say about not outsourcing it, quote unquote, to the marketing department. There's a couple of reasons for that beyond the obvious. One is technical and one is more, say, strategic in terms of being a thought leader. But let's start with the technical. Without getting overly technical, um, hopefully most people understand that the way that the social media algorithms work, for example, they are engineered to suppress brand shared content. So the content that your law firm is sharing, say on your LinkedIn page or your Facebook page, the algorithms suppress that content because they're hoping and, and they're understanding that brands will pay for promotion. So uh, if that content's not getting deep engagement, lots of comments and likes, it's not going to organically rise to the top of most people's social media feeds. So that's the technical reason for not outsourcing it to the marketing department or to the broader firm brand. The other is because, um, what's the old saying, Jay, that people hire the attorney and not the firm, right? Yep, that's right. So the whole concept behind what we espouse as content marketers is thought leadership marketing. And you as an attorney are trying to achieve a reputation as a thought leader. And you only do that through your personal brand. I mean, certainly you're going to rely on the gravitas of the corporate brand and the firm brand uh, for sure. But people are going to want to hire you and your expertise and it is incumbent upon you as the individual to, um, to share the content, to establish that authority and the reputation as a thought leader. Um, and if people are only seeing your firm's logo and not your face, then, then all of your content, all of it, but a significant portion of the value of your expertise as a content contributor is sort of washed down in sort of, diluted by the corporate brand when really people want to talk to you and they want to meet you and they're going to get to trust you before they ever trust the firm. Make sense? Yeah. Couldn't have said it better. Uh, so I think that's probably a great, great place to wrap up. Um, so I think, you know, just to recap five reasons your content marketing may not be working. So we had, you're too inconsistent. Your content is too general in nature. You're doing too much analysis and not delivering enough actionable advice. Your headlines aren't working and perhaps your promotion strategy isn't dialed in enough. So I think those are, you know, there's more uh, potential reasons why, but I think those are five common ones, Tom. So hopefully people got something out of this. Yeah, this is the, those are the five things that go back. And again, if you feel like you're just not getting enough out of the past six months of your content um, strategy and your content initiatives, evaluate 
all of your convent in content inventory around these five markers. And then again, now's the time to take what you've learned and, and fix it and apply it going forward into the fourth quarter and into 2021. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, Tom, thank you uh, for your insights today. And, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.